so that each and every one of us know more about who we are and who you are and who we are in you. We thank you, Father, for doing all these things and even greater things than we can ask or think. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. Many of you know my testimony, how that I got saved just a few days before my seventh birthday. So I grew up in church, mostly Southern Baptist Church, and they were wonderful people. They loved God with all of their hearts. But the biggest part of our Christian life in the denominational church that I grew up in was to be quick to repent. Backsliding was the, the big enemy. And we knew that there were things about the way that we lived or let me say it this way, we knew how God wanted us to live. But we didn't have any power. We didn't have any tools to work with. I remember one of the first things that I learned when I was 22 years old, I came across, and I, I really for the life of me can't remember how I came across it. But there was a tape series that I got my hands on by Kenneth Hagin. The tape series was Mountain Moving Faith. I don't know where it came from. Surely somebody must have given it to me. But I don't remember who it was. And whoever it was never got it back. <laughs> and that tape series, I, I, I don't know why I was impressed to listen. I don't know. I don't remember the circumstances surrounding it. But somehow or another, I listened to the first tape in that series. And it set me on a course or a track that would alter the course of my life. I remember hearing Brother Hagin say on, on this tape things that made me realize that the Word of God was a tool, that it was something that we could use. Before then, we knew that we were supposed to carry our Bibles to church. Don't know why. But there were things that we were supposed to do, things that we were willing to do. And I'm sure that it was out of a heart of love, trying to do right, trying to be who God wanted us to be. But when I found out that the Bible was something that we could use and that it would make changes in, our, in my life specifically, but in the lives of the people that, that would use it, it altered everything that I ever thought I knew about God. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 20 says, My son, attend unto my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not depart from your eyes. And keep them in the midst of your heart. Verse 22 says, For they are life unto those that find them. And health to all their flesh. Folks, there's a discovery process when it comes to the word. And not every Christian finds the word to be life to them. Now, let me clarify what I mean by that. You can be born again 
and come into the family of God and that be as far as you ever go in spiritual growth or development. And I guess that's what we were doing at the time that I was growing up. And again, it wasn't out of rebellion. It wasn't because we didn't care about God or love God. We just didn't know what to do. Well, if you don't know, you don't know. But when I found the word to be a tool, a weapon, a shield, I saw verses of scripture like when Jesus was tempted in the wilderness and how that he, the son of God, who had the spirit of God without measure, he used the word of God as a defense against the temptations that the devil brought. Well, whoever thought you could do that? Who knew? But one of the turning points in my life was when I realized that the word was something that we were to use, not just to read, not just to memorize verses, but it was something that we were supposed to use. God gave it to us to use. Now, folks, think about things from God's point of view. We have historical records of things in the Scripture. For example, we know the creation account in the first few, verse, uh, first few chapters of the book of Genesis. We know what God did and how he did it. We see his reaching through the portals of time to come back into mankind's life after Adam's sin and the law of sin and death began to reign in the earth. We know what God did as a result of being separated from his greatest creation, which was man. And by man, I mean men and women. I'm talking about mankind. We saw how that he made covenants with mankind. Reaching back into man's life if he would allow them, if man would allow God to do so. He made a covenant with Noah. And then he made a covenant with Abraham. Also that he could get back involved in mankind's lives because they had been separated from God through sin. But if you're God and you want, first and foremost, all of mankind to come back into your family, you give a written record that was supernaturally given and supernaturally protected through, through thousands of years, what would you want that book to do? What would you want the Bible to do? What purpose do we have for God's Word? Now, I'm talking big picture stuff now. We know individually how that we take different scriptures and apply them to our lives and our circumstances and stand on them in faith. And see God move and see him work in our lives. But again I'm talking big picture. Big picture what would you as God want the Bible to do? What would be your purpose for giving us your word. Giving mankind your word. And preserving it so that we could have a record throughout all of the history of man. What would you want the word to do? What is the purpose for the Bible? We know the benefits. We know the things that it will do in our lives. 
But what does God want the Bible to do? Well, first and foremost, God would want the Bible to point us to Jesus so that we could be inducted into his family, born again into his family. That's a given. We'd have to understand that. But what's God trying to do with the word? What's the Bible for? We're born again. We know of the experience called the infilling of the Holy Ghost or the baptism of the Spirit. We know that the Bible gives us information so that we can partake of that, just like we can partake of anything and everything else Jesus accomplished for us through his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. Death and burial and resurrection from the dead. But what would you want the word to do? I said something last week or a week ago, two weeks ago. I'm not sure exactly when it was. But I didn't think about it. It just came out of my mouth. And I realized from that moment that it was something that I got by inspiration of the Spirit. I called the Bible the book of authority. And I haven't been able to get away with that from that since. The Bible is the book of authority. It's the book of authority. It's where God reveals to us our authority as his children in here in the earth. And yet I would dare say that the authority that we have by being children of God and part of God's plan for mankind to rule and dominate the earth, have dominion in the earth, I dare say that there are very few subjects, if any, that are more widely misunderstood or just not known at all. Look with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. It tells us the creation account. Six days God, in six days God makes everything that there was to make. And then he put an end of his creative work. On this sixth day, Genesis 1.26, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. This is the only place in the Bible where you can find God identifying his purpose for mankind. Now don't get me wrong. I'm not discounting other things. We could call the Bible a book of love. Because it's a revelation to us of God's love for us. And it's an instruction manual how we can walk in the love of God toward others. But the Bible doesn't say God created man to love. It said he created man for the purpose of having dominion over the earth. Now we know that the Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses let every word be established. And this is not the only scripture that we have that identifies God's plan for man to have authority. Look with me to Psalm 115. 
Psalm 115, verse 16. It says, The heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth has he given to the children of men. The heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth he's given to the children of men. There are other places where the Bible identifies man's authority. But folks, I, I've got to tell you, and I'm, I'm ashamed to admit this. I just turned 64 years old, and there's some things I'm seeing about authority that I just have seen. It's a shame for somebody to get as old as I am and not know it any more than I know about what God's plan is for our lives. Now, if it's a shame for me to be the age I am and know what I know, think about how terrible it is for you. I've got to admit, I have just until this last year carried a lot of denominational uh, tradition that I didn't know I had. In Matthew chapter 7, this is something that really opened my eyes and made me start to think and wonder about some things. It tells, it's really the, the context begins in Matthew chapter 5 where Jesus begins the Sermon on the Mount. And it goes all the way through the end of chapter 7 and it identifies some things about what Jesus did and how he did them that came as a real surprise to me before I saw it or at the point that I saw it. Matthew 7 verse 28 and it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings the people were astonished at his doctrine. Notice that word doctrine. The word doctrine is the word teaching. It means teaching. And it says they were astonished at Jesus' teaching. For he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Notice the word one is in italics. Whenever you find a word in italics in the King James, it means the translators added it to help us with our understanding. Now, folks, any time the translators added something, they added something for their, according to their understanding. They thought that the original Greek text was saying that Jesus showed that he had authority. But that's not what it says. The two words, as and having, literally mean how to hold. So Jesus, let's insert it and read it that way. It came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his teaching. Not at him, but at his teaching. For he taught them how to hold authority and not as the scribes. Look to Mark chapter 1. Beginning in verse 21, it says, And they went to Capernaum, straightway on the Sabbath day, and he entered into the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his doctrine, his teaching. They were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. Now, folks, this is a different setup, a different circumstance, different event than Matthew chapter 7. But here, notice the word one is not in italics. The translators didn't add that. That's part of the original text. 
So what does that tell us? Well, the word as and that had are the same Greek words that are used over in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 29. So it literally says they were astonished at his doctrine for he taught them how one could hold authority and not as the scribes. Still, he's not pointing to himself. He's not saying, or the Bible is not saying, the Holy Ghost didn't give us a record and preserve for us a record of a scripture that says they were astonished at Jesus for he taught them how he held authority. That's not what it says. It says they were astonished because Jesus taught how man, one, any individual, could and should hold authority. Now, folks, if the Bible is true in Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness and let them have dominion over the earth. If that's true, then for Jesus to teach that man has authority and for him to instruct us through the record that we have of the Scripture, Jesus is still trying to get across what God intended for mankind to do on the earth. And that is to hold or to exercise authority. Look with me to Mark chapter 12. I'm sorry, it's Mark chapter 11, the end of chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, Jesus has just spoken the great words of faith, identifying how man can use faith, use his faith to change things. As a matter of fact, let's back up and start in verse 22. Jesus has cursed the fig tree the night before. And the next morning they come and see that the fig tree is dried up from the roots. Verse 22 or verse 21. Peter calling to remembrance said unto him, Master, behold the fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. And Jesus answering said unto them, Have faith in God. For verily I say unto you that whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. Now, folks, if that's not the exercise of authority, somebody tell me what it is. He's saying man can use this thing called faith and change his circumstances. But the circumstances won't change unless man does something on his own. And by that I mean initiates the operation of this thing called faith. It is, in other words, the exercise of authority. Jesus goes on in verse 24. Therefore I say unto you, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe that you receive them and you shall have them. Again, that has to be the exercise of authority. Jesus is saying that you can exercise authority through the words that you speak. And you can exercise authority through the prayers that you pray. Now there are conditions set on it. There are qualifiers. But that's not our subject this morning. But rather the use and the exercise of authority. Verse 25, and when you stand praying, forgive if you have aught against any. That your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father which is in heaven forgive your trespasses. In other words... Faith won't work without a forgiving heart. Paul wrote to the church in Galatians chapter 6, verse 5, I believe it is, that faith 
worketh by love. Well, if faith works by love, then faith won't work without it. And that's what Jesus is saying here. It's the only hindrance that, he, that the word identifies to the unlimited possibilities and the unlimited potential of faith. Verse 27, and they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, there came to him the chief priests and the scribes and the elders, and they said unto him, by what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee the authority to do these things? They don't question his authority. They've seen and heard enough of the things that he has done. And this is right at the end of his three years of earthly ministry before the cross. So they know what he's done. They don't question that he has authority. They want to know who gave it to him. How did he get the authority for this? And Jesus answered and said, I will also ask of you one question and answer me. And then I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or of men? Answer me. And they reasoned with themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say, why then didn't you believe him? But if we say it was of men, they feared the people, for all men counted John that he was a prophet indeed. And they answered and said unto him, we cannot tell. And Jesus answering said unto them, neither do I tell you. By what authority I do these things. Now folks if Jesus was just trying to keep these guys from getting the answer. I wouldn't put that past. Him. By the way that they've treated him for three years. But if that were the case why would we have a record of it? If Jesus is just thumbing his nose at these guys. Then why give us a record? The Holy Ghost isn't haphazard about what he does and what he provided for us. He's not casual about the information that the Bible provides for us in any way or in any subject. So by virtue of the fact that the Holy Ghost gave us a record of these things, there's got to be a truth here that he wants us to see. Now when Jesus asked the question, the baptism of John, was it of heaven or was it of men? We know the answer from, Isaiah, from uh, Acts chapter 19. When Paul goes to Ephesus, he finds certain disciples there, and he asks them, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believe? In other words, Paul saw from their lives evidence that he assumed meant that they were born again. But their answer shocked him. He thought they had already been born again by the lives that they were living that he could see. Isn't it nice when you have evidence in somebody's life rather than just their, your, their confession that they have something from God and then you have to scratch your head and wonder? Well, so Paul thought these guys are saved. Their attitude toward God and the things of God, they've got to be saved. But maybe they haven't heard about the baptism of the Spirit. Well, they said, we don't know anything about receiving the Holy Spirit. Who's that? And then Paul digs a little deeper and he says, well, under what are you baptized? In other words, he's saying, are you saved or when did you get saved? And they said, we haven't heard of the Holy Ghost. We're baptized under John's baptism. Well, Paul says John baptized with a baptism of repentance. But he said there was one coming after him namely Jesus, 
whose shoes he wasn't worthy to untie. When they heard these things, they willingly gave their hearts to the Lord, and then they were filled with the Holy Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. So the Bible tells us in Acts chapter 19 that John's baptism was a baptism of men. Remember, remember what John said. He said, I baptize you with water, but there's one coming after me that will baptize you with the Holy Ghost and fire. So the baptism of the Holy Ghost in, that they're talking about, including salvation, is from heaven. But John's baptism was a baptism of men. But remember Jesus said about John that he was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. The message that he proclaimed is what made him the greatest of the prophets. He didn't do any miracles that we have record of. As we have record of many of the other Old Testament prophets. But Jesus said that John was still the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. So what was John's ministry all about? Where did his authority come from? Remember when, they, when Jesus asked them the question. He puts them on those two questions on equal footing. Which tells us that the answer to one question is the answer to the other. Well, we know clearly what John's baptism was about. John was, a, was ministering under the baptism of men, anointed of the Holy Ghost. And that's exactly the same thing for Jesus. He was a man anointed of the Holy Ghost. Now turn with me to John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, he begins the chapter by talking about his place in the earth as opposed to Satan's place in the earth. Verse 1, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that enters in by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. Now the door he's talking about is the entrance into the earth. The sheepfold represents the earth. Remember the Bible says we're the sheep of his pasture. Jesus is saying, I came into the earth legally. The virgin birth gave Jesus a legal right to operate on the earth as a man. Jesus calls himself the son of man 60 out of 65 times. Only five times in the four gospels does he refer to himself as the son of God. And three of those are in one, different, one specific place. He identified as the Son of Man much more so than he identified as the Son of God. And Jesus is saying, I came in legally. The devil didn't. The devil had to procure the use of a body to even tempt Adam and Eve. He took upon himself the form of a serpent. But Jesus didn't come in that way. Jesus came into the earth through the virgin birth, which gives him authority to operate on the earth as a man. Now, the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 8, it says he laid aside his heavenly power and glory and came to the earth as a man. Well, if he laid aside his heavenly power and glory, then that means he didn't come into the earth with power. He came into the earth just as a flesh and bone body. 
when he was about 30 years old, John baptized him in the Jordan River, and the Holy Ghost came upon him in bodily shape as a dove. And from that point on, he began to do miracles, signs and wonders, healing the sick, casting out devils, and so forth. Now, why didn't he do those things when he was 29 instead of when he was 30? Because he didn't have the power of the Holy Ghost on him to do it. When the Bible says he laid aside his heavenly power and glory, it means he came to the earth to be just like you and me. Well, we in and of ourselves don't have the power of God to release other people from sickness or disease or from evil spirits. That's why he had to have an anointing. Now, folks, think about this for a minute. Who can anoint God? See, if Jesus had the power to do signs and wonders and miracles, apart from when the Holy Ghost came upon him in the Jordan River at John's baptism, then how in the world could he be anointed? You can't anoint God. And they could anoint Jesus. God could anoint Jesus only by virtue of the fact that he had emptied himself of his heavenly power and glory. He said this over and over again. He said, I of myself, mine own self can do nothing. But whatever I see the Father do, that's what I'm doing. He said, I came not to do my own will, but the will of the Father. He's talking about what he was anointed to do. He says that himself in Luke chapter 4 and verse 18 in Nazareth when he stood up in the synagogue to teach. He read from Isaiah 61, what we know of is Isaiah 61 where he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me. And then he tells what he was anointed to do. He said that he was anointed. Well, again, if he was operating as the son of God, why would he need an anointing? So Jesus is saying that the devil, in the way that he came in and presented himself to man, came in illegally. Folks, the devil is an illegal alien in our world. I would suggest you do not present an open borders policy with him. <laughs> the devil really didn't understand the virgin birth. If he had understood the virgin birth and been clued in to God's plan, the Bible says the devil wouldn't even have crucified Jesus. But God operated in plain sight and overcame him now further down in John chapter 10 he identifies himself as the good shepherd let's start reading for the sake of time let's start reading again in verse 30 Jesus said talking to the Jews he said I and my father are one then the Jews took up stones again to stone him and Jesus answered them and said many good works have I showed you from my father for which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him and said, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, because that thou being a man makest thyself God. Now, folks, I want you to realize the only thing Jesus said was, I and my Father are one. The Jews are concerned because that statement 
is Jesus making himself one with God. Now, let me take a little side journey here for just a moment. Isn't that what Adam and Eve were tempted with? Isn't that what the devil said to Eve? He questioned what God had said about eating the forbidden fruit. And Eve correctly says, he said that we shouldn't eat thereof because in the day that we eat thereof, we shall surely die. Well, if she's talking about or God was talking about spiritual death, not physical death. And then the devil turned it around and said, you won't die. God knows that if you eat, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, here's the devil tempting Eve with a desire to be like God or to be a God herself. But then when Jesus says, I and my father are one, the Jews get all stirred up saying that he's making himself equal with God. Here's a little side journey about what the devil is like. The thing that the devil will tempt you with is the very thing he'll condemn you with or condemn you for. So when Jesus says, I and my father are one, and they take up stones, he questions them further. They identify that their problem is that he's making himself equal with God. Notice how Jesus responds to that. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's. He's saying, you're accusing me of making myself equal with God or claiming that that's some evil thing. But doesn't your own word, doesn't the Old Testament say that God called man God's? He goes further, he said, if he called them gods unto whom the word came, word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, say ye of him whom the, whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said I am the son of, my, uh, son of God. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand. Jesus said, here you are accusing me of doing wrong by claiming that I'm one with the Father. But doesn't the Old Testament itself say that you are God's? Talking to mankind. Now turn back with me to Psalm 82. Let's look at the place where this is referring to. Psalm 82 is the scripture that he's referring to, verse 6. Here's God speaking through the, through the psalmist. I have said you are God's, and all of you are children of the Most High. Again, I want you to get this point, folks. When Jesus is accused of wrongdoing by saying that he's equal with God, he goes back to the Old Testament. And he says, well, isn't that what the Old Testament says about man? Now, folks, if the Old Testament says that about man, and it does, then notice what God calls us. 
God is calling man. God's in this world. Now, some people would argue with that and back up to verse 1, Psalm 82, verse 1. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. This word gods that's used in verse 6 and also in verse 1 is a word that we're familiar with. It's the name for God that is in the Hebrew Elohim. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26, and God said, let us make man in our own image. That's the word Elohim. And some would say, well, Elohim means God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Ghost too. That's what Elohim means. Well, if that's true, then the rest of the scripture ought to fit that. But it doesn't. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods, among the Elohim. How long will you judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Now, if the word Elohim is the name for God, Elohim, is talking about the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Which one, the Father or the Son or the Holy Spirit, is judging unjustly? You see my point? It can't be talking about the Godhead. It has to be talking about man. So when Jesus says in his defense, when he's accused of wrongdoing by making himself equal with God, and folks, we run the same thing today. You go around telling your Christian friends that you're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. They'll let that go one, maybe two times. And after that, they'll start thinking badly about you thinking that you're claiming something that's not true. So Jesus goes back to the Old Testament. He says, in the Old Testament, it says that you're God's. And if that was written to the people that the word of God came to, meaning the, the house of Israel, how much more so would he be the son of God or equal with God because God himself has sanctified Jesus? Turn back with me to Psalm 8. Let's start in verse 1. This is a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained strength because of thine enemies, that thou mightest still the enemy and the, and the avenger. When I consider the heavens, the works of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him. For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels. And hast crowned him with glory and honor. This word angels is the word Elohim. Thou hast made him a little lower than God himself. See folks man is not under the angels. If that were true and Paul tells us this very specifically in the letters that he wrote to the church. He said how could man be under the angels if man will judge the angels. One of the things that God has planned for us to do when this earth is over and done with is to judge the angels. Now that's going to bear just a few comments too. 
Because the Bible says that in the beginning, the angels had free will and choice. Similar to like man has now. And it says a third of them rebelled against God and went with the devil. And were placed in chains of darkness until the end. It says the angels then were sealed. Meaning they made their choice. One third went with the devil and will suffer his judgment. And two thirds stayed with God. Now it would be foolish to think that man is going to judge the two thirds of the angels that stayed with God. How would we judge them? Whether or not they were effective in ministering to the heirs of salvation, as Hebrews refers to it, refers to their work. There's no judgment for that. There's nothing to be judged for or concerning regarding that. So the judgment of the angels he's talking about has to be the one-third that rebelled and fell. But again, the point is made. If man will ever come to the place where he judges the angels, then he has to be above them, not below them. Now, that doesn't mean we're stronger than the angels. It means we're the ones that put them to work. I know that's a new concept for most Christians. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than the angels, lower than God himself, and hast crowned him with glory and honor. Verse 6, thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands, and hast put all things under his feet. Now, I haven't been keeping up, but how many references is that already to the truth of God making man to have dominion over his, the work of his hands here on the earth? It's certainly more than two or three, isn't it? Certainly more than two or three. Look with me to John chapter 5. Let's start in verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear him shall live. For as the Father has life in himself, so has he given to the Son to have life in himself. Now notice the context of what he's talking about. He's talking about Jesus on the earth having the same life that God has. That's what Jesus used as the foundation or the basis to say my father and I are one. That's what the Jews used as an excuse or a reason to take his life because they considered what he was saying to be blasphemous. So as he as the Father has life in himself, so also has he given to the Son to have life in himself. Notice verse 27. And hath given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. Notice he does not say the Son of God. He speaks of himself as the Son of God in some of the previous verses, verse 25 specifically. 
So the fact that he identifies himself as the son of man, as the reason why he has the ability or the privilege, the capacity to execute judgment on the earth. See, Jesus didn't die on the cross just as the son of God. He died as the son of man too. And the authority that he was given here on the earth was based solely on the fact that he had come into the earth legally through the virgin birth. He had a flesh and bone and blood body. And that's what gave him authority. Now let's put some of these things together. Genesis 126 says, God said, let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness. The meaning of those Hebrew words literally refer to an exact duplicate and copy of God. So God says, let us make man just exactly like ourselves. I used to say as close as possible. But of course it is possible with God. Anything is possible with God. So for God to say that that's what he was doing, it had to be an exact duplicate in kind. So God said, let us make man in our own image and after our own likeness and let him have dominion over the works of our hands. The heaven is the Lord's, but the earth is he given unto the children of men. Folks, that's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 28. When he's raised from the dead, he appears to the disciples. He says, all hail. He said, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. And then he immediately conferred that authority on the earth back to his disciples. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Mark elaborates on that and says, These signs shall follow them that believe in my name. Folks, Jesus doesn't have authority on the earth because he doesn't have a body. He doesn't have an earthly body anymore. And the thing that qualifies the exercise of authority here on the earth is having a physical fleshly body. We don't have authority in heaven because we're not built for it. Jesus no longer has authority on the earth or the capacity to exercise that authority here on the earth because he doesn't have a body. See, folks, when you lose your body, you've got to leave the planet. These bodies that we have Someone identified or someone compared them to spacesuits. If you're going to operate in space, you've got to have something that protects you from the environment and enables you to work in, that, in those conditions. Well, in the same way, our bodies, our physical bodies are earth suits. They're what allow us and enable us to operate here on the earth. But if something happens... And you lose your body. you got to leave the planet. The only thing I'm aware of that anybody can do after they lose their physical body here on the earth is vote Democrat. <laughs> Outside of that, there's nothing you can do on the earth when you lose your body. Again, big picture. What does God intend for the word to do? 
Why did he give us the Bible? I believe it could be summarized, maybe not completely, but to a great degree. I believe the answer to that question could be summarized to provide us a book of authority. To provide for us a book of authority. Folks, the devil can only use deception. That's all he's got. And so what has he worked over time against the body of Christ to do to rob us of what God had intended for us and still intends for us today? He condemns us for being unworthy. He tries to tell us that the righteousness of God isn't really for us in the way that it's preached or in the way that the Bible identifies because of our own sin and our own shortcomings. And nothing could be further from the truth. The fact is, he knows you have authority. So he stays on your shoulders yelling in your ear constantly to try to keep you from exercising that authority. Because he knows once you do, his goose is cooked. The Bible is a book of authority. And the Bible identifies in the life of Jesus an unlimited potential regarding the exercise of that authority. Jesus calmed the storm. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He cleansed the lepers. He walked on water. Even more than that, he and the disciples were translated in the boat that they were in to a different place in time. I was imagining and talking to the Lord about some things. And I had seen the movie The Matrix. Where at the end, the star takes off and flies. I always get a kick out of that scene. But I was talking to the Lord. And I asked him, I said, Lord, could you have flown when you were here on the earth? And he answered me. I wasn't expecting an answer. But he answered me. And he said, why would I need to? I just translated when I had to. And that's exactly right. Why bother with flying? He just caused the boat that the disciples were in to be at the, end, uh, the other side of the sea instantly. Now, why did Jesus do things like that? It wasn't necessary. Why did he walk on the water? It wasn't necessary. He could have gone around a variety of ways and gone about this without doing those things that are specifically identified. But the picture that it gives us is the absolute unlimited potential when we exercise our authority through faith. 
Never was there a situation when Peter asked Jesus if he could walk on the water with him. Never was there a situation where Jesus said, now wait a minute, guys, let's use wisdom here. That's too far-fetched. The exercise of faith or the exercise of our authority will change every law of physics if we need it to. The people were astonished at Jesus' teaching for he taught them how to hold authority. He taught them how to hold authority. He taught them how to exercise authority. He taught them to speak the word and expect things to change. And that's what he's teaching us too. Whosoever shall say unto the mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he will eventually have what he says. He will eventually have what he says. Maybe not instantly, maybe not overnight. But once the word of faith is spoken, the only thing that can stop it from coming into being is to rescind it. Once you speak your authority, once you speak your faith, under no circumstances ever should you go back on what you said. Because the Bible says if we'll hold fast the profession of our faith, God is faithful to bring it to pass. You're the one that has authority in your life, folks. Certainly not the devil. He's not big enough to keep it from coming to pass. Because we are more and more catching on to his tricks. And we found the secret. The mystery of the kingdom of God, as Jesus said. To change anything and everything that we need changed. Let's pray. We bless you, Father. And we thank you for giving us authority, dominion over the works of your hands here in this earth. We thank you that there is no power that's greater than your word in us. We thank you that there's nothing that can stop the force of faith, the spiritual force of faith from bringing results if we'll simply hold fast to it. So we declare that we're healed by the stripes of Jesus. We declare that the chastisement of our peace was upon him and therefore we have been made rich. We declare that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. We declare that our righteousness is of you. And because we've been made righteous, because we've been empowered by the Son of God to do the works that he did here on the earth,
we take hold of the anointing of God. Power that was delegated to us by the head of the church. And we use that power not only to maintain our own freedom, but to set others free too. We declare that no weapon formed against us shall prosper. And every tongue that rises against us in judgment, we do hereby condemn. This is part of our inheritance as a child of God. And our righteousness is of you. Satan, take your hand off our families. Take your hands off our loved ones. We break your power in the name of Jesus. We say that it shall be unto us even as it was spoken. Health, life, provision. We choose to walk in the fullness of your blessing, Lord. In Jesus' precious name. And everybody that agrees with that prayer, say amen. Amen. Blessed be the name of Jesus. We worship you, Father. We magnify your holy name. You are a good God. You are a good heavenly Father. You have done all things well. Faithful are you who promised, who will also bring it to pass. We love you, Father. And we magnify your name. Hallelujah. 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 Say this after me. I have been given authority over the works of God's hands. I choose to exercise my authority to break every power of the devil and to put him to naught. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Bless you, folks. Thanks for being with us. Pour on the strength.